Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and this is The Bible Teachers. We are continuing the search for certainty with Pastor Danny Malenkoff. This is the fourth program in the series. Hello, Danny. G'day, Barry. How are you? Good to see you again. Thank you. Good to be here. Are you enjoying the series? I'm really, really enjoying it, getting into it, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I've been enjoying listening, too. Danny, you've examined the outline prophecy of Daniel 2, the major signs that Christ's return is near and God's rescue plan. What's our topic today? Well, today we're continuing on by taking a look at the all-important question that people pose. In our previous uh, message, we, we discovered that God is love, and he showed that by giving his own son, Jesus Christ. And the big question that is in people's minds and hearts is, if God is so love, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why doesn't God do something about it if he's all-powerful? And so this is an important question, one that I've been asked more than any other question. And so we're going to address this question today, Barry. Good. I'm sure that many of our listeners have asked the same question and will be really interested in your, in your presentation. I also look forward to what you have to say. So over to you again. Thank you so much. In today's episode on the search for certainty, we want to take a look at the all-important question of why is there so much suffering in the world? In 2010, I had the opportunity to go to Western Europe, to the Reformation lands, as well as to the Middle East there and to the Bible lands on a study tour with the 40 other ministers uh, that came from different parts of the South Pacific. And whilst we were there, especially in Western Europe, I had the opportunity of going through Germany. And one of the stops was a place called Butchenwald. It's near Weimar there in Germany. This is a place where the Germans erected a concentration camp, one of 1,200 camps and and sub-camps that they erected in the countries that they occupied during World War II. Butchenwald, it was a camp um, that housed almost 250,000 individuals who were incarcerated from various nationalities. In this concentration camp, some 50,000 individuals died between 1937 and 1945. Today, Butchenwald serves as a memorial and a permanent exhibition museum. What I discovered there, what I saw with my own eyes, is too graphic to portray. And you would remember or you would know uh, some of the atrocities that took place during that very sad period in Earth's history, where almost six million Jews lost their lives during what is now known as the Holocaust. Whilst we were there in Butchenwald, I took a look at this three-word phrase that is embedded there in the camp's main entrance gate. It is a slogan that describes uh, the thinking of those who were there in that camp, those who were the organizers, the originators of this particular concentration camp. The words are in German, and uh, these are the words, Jedem das Sein, and I'm sure Those of you who are of German um, origin and can speak German will know that I didn't get that quite right. However, the English interpretation of those words are to each his own, or figuratively speaking, everyone gets what he deserves. As I thought of those words, everyone gets what he deserves, 
I thought of the words that many have attributed um, to the reason or one of the reasons why why the Germans, and in particular Hitler, um, had, had such animosity towards the Jews. And there have been historians that have pointed to the words of, of the Jewish leaders and the people in Jesus' day who, when Pilate, was about to sentence Jesus to death, they cried out. And and the account is found there in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 25 where they cried out, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Could it be that these words, everyone gets what he deserves, um, have a small part to play or a large part to play in the fulfillment of those words as far as the Germans were concerned, in particular as far as Hitler was concerned and those who orchestrated these terrible events there in Germany during World War II. Everyone gets what he deserves. As we think of those words, People ask the question, and I ask the question, all ask the question, why? Did these people deserve to get what they received? Did six million Jews and many others besides deserve to experience the horrors of, of pain and suffering um, that, that is incomprehensible to us living in the 21st century? Did they deserve that? Why is there so much suffering in the world? This is probably the most asked question of all time. Certainly a question that I have been asked more than any other question. Harold Kushner, a Jewish rabbi living in the United States, wrote a best-selling book in the early 80s, and it was entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. We've often heard the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, he took that question and he put it as a statement. When bad things happen to good people. Why did he write this book, which, as I pointed out, became a bestseller? Very strange for a religious book written back in the early 90, in the early 80s. Well, he wrote this book due to the fact that when his son was three years old, his wife and he learned that his son had a disease called progeria or rapid aging. A pediatrician told the parents that Aaron, the name of their little boy, would never grow much beyond three feet in height, that he would look like a little old man while he was still a child, and that he would die in his early teens. The years passed, and the dire predictions were all fulfilled. Aaron sadly died two days after his 14th birthday, looking like a little old man. This is a very severe case of injustice and enormous loss. However, we all know that pain affects us all. Sooner or later, you may have been through a divorce. You may have been through a deprived childhood or abusive childhood. You may have or are currently suffering suffering from a prolonged illness. Or you have felt the pain and grief associated with losing a loved one. Sadly, the truth is, that sadness and grief comes in all shapes and sizes and we are all affected by pain and suffering. How often when there is a disaster that strikes somewhere around the world, people cry out, why God, why did you allow this to happen? Why did you allow this earthquake to take place? In fact, there are many that put the blame 
squarely on the shoulders of God. Today, in the media and insurance companies often use the term to describe these terrible natural disasters that happen all around the world as acts of God, that these were acts uh, perpetrated by God himself. In our last presentation, we discovered the all-consuming truth, the all-powerful truth that resounds from Genesis to Revelation that God is love. That's what we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. God is love. Now, the question is, the all-important question is, if God is love, as the Bible claims, why is there so much suffering in the world? Many have asked this question. If God is so loving, if he is all good, then why does he allow so much suffering to continue in this world? Why didn't God just put an end to evil whenever or wherever it first raised its ugly head? Why does there have to be so much pain and suffering and sorrow in the world? Where did evil come from? These are all very good questions that people ask. Very, very good questions. Sadly, most people can't give a good compelling answer to these simple yet heart-wrenching questions. I believe that only Jesus in his word can offer us a compelling, logical answer that brings us peace in the midst of life's storm. Before we take a look at the answer from God's word, we want to pause and ask and pray that God will be with us. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Today we want to deal with one of the most important questions of all. Why is there so much pain and suffering and sorrow in the world? Where did all the pain come from? Where did evil originate from? Lord, this is an all-important question. There is so much confusion in the world today. So, Lord, we ask and pray once again today as we open your holy word that you will open our hearts and our minds, that you will, that you will help us to understand the truth for there is so many lies out there in the world. We need to know the truth, the beautiful truth that will set us free. So as we open your word, open our hearts and minds, and through your Holy Spirit, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In order to answer this question, we need to begin at the very beginning of time. We need to go to the book of Genesis, where there in the very first pages of Genesis, we discover how God created this world. The very first words of the Bible are these, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 3, And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Notice here the Bible says right from the very outset that when God created this world, he created the world to be good. In fact, if you read through, and we don't have time to read through the entire first chapter of Genesis, but you will notice there every single time that God creates something new, something different on each of the six days of creation, the Bible says good. When God saw what he had created and made, he declared it was good. Six times 
God said it was good. Then finally, at the end of the chapter, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we read these words. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So we have God saying, good, 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 good. And finally, everything, as he looks out at all of his creation, he says, it is very good. And of course, it was very good. What was the very last thing that God created on the sixth day? That's right. You remember. It was Eve. God created the woman for Adam. And I'm sure when Adam looked at his beautiful partner that God had made for him, just perfect for him in every way, he must have cried out, Whoa, man, isn't she just so beautiful? I think I'll call her woman. And she was indeed very good. And I praise the Lord that he has created for us men beautiful wives that we can share our lives together. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, at the end of the creation account that is repeated in a different way there in chapter 2, we read, And they were both naked, that is in verse 25, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Notice, when God created this world, there was no shame. There was no pain. There was no disease. There was no death. There was no destruction. There was no divorce. There was simply peace, harmony, love, and unity. God created Adam and Eve to live in perfect harmony with their environment, to live in perfect harmony with one another, and ultimately to live in perfect harmony with God himself. So who is responsible for all the evil in the world? Yes, there is a lot of good in this world, but there is a lot of bad, and we all can testify to that. So who is responsible? Well, as we discovered last time we were together, the Bible says in the very next verse, there in chapter 3, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said to you that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And we know the rest of the story. The serpent deceived Eve into eating from that tree that God said to Adam and Eve they should not eat. And in the day that they would eat, they would surely die. And ever since that day, we have suffered the tragic consequences of sin. Those tragic consequences that are played out on our evening news each and every night, that are played out in our daily lives through the pain, the suffering that we all go through and experience here on this sin-sick planet. Jesus gave us some more insight as far as the origin of evil and who ultimately is responsible. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told the story, or a parable, I should say, of a sower who went out to sow seed. The Bible says that he sowed out good seed. You could read the story there in Matthew 13. We don't have time to read the entire story. I just want to point out a couple of important points that Jesus raised. Jesus said the sower went out to sow good seed. However, whilst everyone slept, an enemy came along and the enemy sowed weeds or tares. Now, Jesus interpreted this parable and notice part of this interpretation that relates to our subject for today. Jesus in Matthew 13 verses 37 and 39, he gave us a definition of this parable, who the sower was, what the good seed was, 
who the enemy was and what the weeds were. Notice what Jesus said. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed, notice that word good, is the Son of Man, or Jesus Christ. The enemy who sowed them, that is the weeds, is the devil. Notice, Jesus took no responsibility for the origin of evil. He took no responsibility for all the bad that we see in the world. The Bible is clear. Jesus is clear. He sowed good seed. And that's what we read in the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and chapter 2. He is the son of man who sowed good seed. But then someone followed, and we just read that in chapter 3 of Genesis, that the serpent came along, the serpent, a symbol of the devil. And he came along and he sowed weeds, or he sowed that which is evil. He sowed that which is bad. And that is why the devil's name is evil with a capital D. It begins with D for devil because he is a deceiver. And we're going to take a look at that some more as we go along today. Notice the acts of the devil. Jesus pointed out very clearly they are the weeds in our lives. They are all the pain and the suffering in our lives. What are the acts of God? The acts of God are evident in the life of Jesus who raised the dead who brought sight to the blind, who healed the crippled, who cast out demons out of the oppressed, who fed the poor and hungry, who brought hope and happiness to countless thousands. They are acts of God. The insurance companies would have us believe that acts of God are the destruction that takes place on planet Earth. But that is not what the Bible teaches us. In fact, in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus summarized what his plan is for us, as well as what the enemy's plan is for us. Notice these words in John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus says, The thief, and you can imagine who the thief is. I'm sure you have guessed who the thief is. Notice the thief. He does not come, Jesus said, except to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Notice, Jesus has come to give us life and to give us the abundant life, whereas the enemy, the thief, his only aim is to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, the big question is, where did the devil come from? Did God create him evil from the very beginning? Is that how he was created and made? The Bible helps us to understand the origins of the devil. Notice what we read in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28 and verse 11, where the prophet Ezekiel pulls back the curtain and gives us powerful insights as to the origins of the devil. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. And here, the king of Tyre is a symbol of Satan or the devil, as we will discover, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection. Notice that word, perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. There it is for the second time. You were in Eden. There we go. That is where that is where we find the serpent in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning of time. You were in Eden, the Garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. 
You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Notice how God describes this covering cherub, this anointed cherub. He describes him as this angel that was perfect. On two occasions, we have that word perfect. Describing this covering cherub that God created. And he was right there, the Bible says, he walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. In other words, he was there on the holy mountain of God in the very presence of God. He was one of the two covering cherubs that the Bible describes that are right there beside the very throne of God. So he was right there next to God. We discovered that he was, in fact, the leading angel that God created, the angel that would preside and direct and lead and guide the rest of the angels that God had created. He was a perfect angel. In fact, in verse 15 of Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel goes on and he says, You were perfect in all your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity, or that word is sin, was found in you. Notice, not once, not twice, but three times, the Bible describes this angel created by God as perfect. Perfect. So the question is, what was it that this covering cherub aspired to that caused him to sin? It says you were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created till iniquity or sin was found in you. What sin was found in this covering cherub? In Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 17, we read these words. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Notice what the problem was of this covering cherub. This covering cherub, because of his beauty, his incredible wisdom that God had created him with, because of his incredible splendor, the Bible says this angel's heart was lifted up. What does this sound like to you? What does this sound like to me? This sounds like pride. Pride. So what was God's leading angel, pride-filled aim? What was his pride-filled aim? What did he aspire to? When we come back, we will unpack this all-important question and the rest of this story. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABM Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612-4973-3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3abnaustralia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc., P.O. Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. 
Welcome back. We finished off the first half of this all-important presentation by asking the question, what was God's leading angel pride-filled aim? What did he aspire to? The Bible goes on and gives us more important information that helps put the pieces together. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, we read these words. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Notice the original name of the devil. His original name was not the devil or Satan as we know him today, but his original name when God created him, perfect as we discovered, was Lucifer, which means son of the morning or light bearer. Where was he? Do you remember? He was right there in the very presence of God, right there beside the throne of God. The Bible says that God is light. He is love and he is light. And Lucifer was to bear the wonderful light of God's love to all those around him. He was to be God's light bearer in a perfect and beautiful way. The Bible goes on and continues, How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And now I will be like the Most High. Notice what Lucifer's aim was. Notice what was inside his pride-filled heart. He wanted to be just like God. In fact, he wanted to be God. Notice the word that appears over and over and over and over again. On five occasions, we have that word, that one-letter word, I. That was his problem. That was his issue. That is the issue that we all face, I. It's the middle letter of sin. Isn't that right? I. It's the middle letter of Lucifer. I. I is where the sin problem began. And sadly, I is where the sin problem resides in each and every heart today. His heart was lifted up because of his pride. Pride. What's the middle letter of pride? It is I. It's all about me myself and I. Lucifer believed that he could run the universe in a far better way than God could. And so that God needed to step off his throne for he could be God. And by definition, there can only be one true God. There can only be one God running this universe. And if he was to be God, well, he needed to do away with God. I came across this very interesting front page, or I should say cover, of Time magazine back in May 20 of 2013, and it was entitled The Me, Me, Me Generation. And it was uh, uh, in reference to the millennial generation or Generation Y, those who were born between 1980 and the year 2000, and describing them as individuals who only think really about themselves. Yes, there are exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, this group, um, this generation of, of young people, you could say, that, that are thinking only about themselves, the me, me, me generation. As I thought about that, I thought that doesn't only describe the millennial 
or Generation Y. That describes all of us. We all have that within our hearts. We have pride. We think of ourselves first and foremost. And unless we allow the grace of God, the the love of Christ to transform our hearts, we too will go down that same road that Lucifer did and that countless others have during the centuries. Notice when it comes to worship, Lucifer wanted worship from the very beginning. He wanted to be like God. You'll remember, or you may remember or may not. If you haven't, I invite you to read through Matthew chapter 3. And there in Matthew chapter 4, I should say, we have the temptation of Jesus Christ. And there the devil comes along and he tempts Jesus with three temptations. And his final temptation is, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of this world. Notice what he ultimately wants. He wants worship. He wants to be worshipped. We're going to look a lot more at that in the coming presentations and how Satan will seek to deceive the whole world into worshipping him. You won't want to miss those all-important presentations, but we'll deal with them at another time. But today, we want to take a look at this war this war between good and evil. And we'll discover that Revelation describes a war that took place in heaven. That's right. This war between good and evil, between Lucifer and God, began in heaven, first and foremost. Now, the question is, what was this first war over? Well, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, pulls back the curtain and helps us to understand what this war was in regards to and what the consequences were. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7 we read, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Now here Michael is is, is a reference to Jesus Christ. Michael simply means one who is like God. And that can only mean Jesus Christ. And the dragon, we are told um, in verse 9, is the serpent, Satan, and the devil. So what was this war over? Well, it's an interesting word, that word for war. In the original Greek, uh, the language that the book of Revelation and the entire New Testament was written in, the word for war is the word polemos. In the English, we get the word polemic from polemos. I looked it up in the dictionary, in the Pocket Macquarie Dictionary, and this is what it defines polemic as, an argument or disputation about some opinion, belief, or doctrine or teaching. So notice what took place in heaven. This war that broke out in heaven was not a war with guns and spears and swords, as many have imagined, especially those that have watched Star Wars and and, and that trilogy, that famous trilogy series. No, it was a war of words. It was a war of ideas. It It was a disputation over an opinion. And what was that opinion? Well, Lucifer believed that he could run the universe in a far better way than God could, that the creatures of the universe, the created beings, all the angels, that they would be far happier, they would, be, they would enjoy greater peace and harmony if they were under his leadership, that his leadership would be far more superior as far as the blessings associated with it for the entire universe than that of God. And the Bible tells us in verse 4 of Revelation 12 that he deceived one-third of the angels 
and they followed his lies, believing that they would be happier under his sovereignty than under God's sovereignty. And the Bible says that the devil and his angels were cast to the earth, and this is where they are today. Well, the question we need to ask is, why didn't God destroy evil? Why didn't he destroy Lucifer before he had the opportunity to spread his lies? Before he and his angels had the opportunity to spread their their sorrow and their pain and their evil to us here on planet Earth? Could God have destroyed him at the very outset? Absolutely. God could have dealt with Lucifer the way I deal with a mosquito. I don't know about you, but I cannot stand mosquitoes. I sleep really well at night. I won't hear a train if it came through the bedroom whilst I was sleeping. But you can be sure if there was a little mosquito in the bedroom and I can just hear it going, I wake up, I wake up my poor wife. And until that mosquito is done and dusted, I cannot go back to sleep. Now, could God have dealt with Lucifer the way I deal with the mosquito, the way you might deal with the mosquito if you're like me? And for those of you who are mosquito lovers, I'm very sorry. I apologize if I've upset and offended you. But that's how I deal with mosquitoes. God certainly could have dealt with Lucifer in that same way. Why didn't he? Why didn't God just destroy him and that one third of the angels that that believed in his lies before he could have an opportunity to spread his evil, his pain, and his suffering throughout the world. Well, suppose with me that the Prime Minister's right-hand man or or right-hand woman here in Australia, the Deputy Prime Minister, one day called a press conference and shared with those reporters who had gathered at the press conference that he or she had evidence to incriminate the Prime Minister of Australia to the point where the Prime Minister would not only lose his or her job, but that they would be put in jail for the rest of their lives. He or she had this evidence that would put the Prime Minister not only out of office, but as I've said, behind bars. Tomorrow, At the same time, at lunchtime, I will reveal all, he says, to the gasping media. Well, you can imagine the country would be a buzz. The world would be a buzz. What will this deputy prime minister reveal? Everybody with bated breath waits for those 24 hours to tick by. The next morning you wake up and you turn on the radio as you travel to work, wondering if there has been any development of the story. And lo and behold, you discover, to your amazement, to the amazement of the nation, to the amazement of the world, that the Deputy Prime Minister, on returning home from Parliament last night, happened to, happened to have an accident, a head-on collision with a semi-trailer, and he lost his life. Now, what would you be thinking? What would the nation, what would the world be thinking? Wow. I wonder if the Deputy Prime Minister actually had some information that would indeed incriminate our Prime Minister, put him behind bars. I wonder what the Prime Minister of Australia has been up to. I wonder what he has done that is so serious. 
Would you be wondering? Would there be doubts? There'd be doubts in my mind and in my heart. Imagine, imagine God destroyed Lucifer at the very beginning of time when he first began to spread his lies. What would the angels have thought? Maybe Lucifer was right. I guess we'll never know. We'll never know the truth now. Or secondly, they may have spoken amongst one another. Whatever you do, don't question God. If you question God, you'll end up just like Lucifer, destroyed, gone. There would be fear forever in the hearts of God's angels, in the hearts of all of his created beings. Does God want people to serve him out of fear? Notice what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Notice what God's plan is. God's plan is for his creatures, for his created beings to serve him, not out of fear, but out of love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that love is the foundation of God's government. Why didn't God create Lucifer and all of his heavenly beings with the inability to sin? Many have asked that question, and it's a very, very good question. Could God have created Lucifer with the inability to sin, with the inability for pride to rise up into his heart, for the inability to rebel against God's kingdom of love? For there to be no opportunity for evil to ever arise? Could God have created Lucifer in that way? Absolutely. God can do anything and everything. Then why didn't God create Lucifer with the inability to sin? Let me share with you what took place back in 1995. I think I've shared this with you in the past, but I'll share it again. In 1995, January 1, 1995, I had the absolute privilege of standing there at the front of church, as we say, standing at the altar, looking into the face of the most beautiful woman in the world. You may want to dispute that and argue with me all you like, but I know that that is the truth. That most beautiful woman in the world, I looked into her face and I had the privilege of saying, yes, I do. I do want to spend the rest of my life with you through sickness and in health for richer or for poorer or poorer still till death do us part. I do. I love you today and for the rest of my life. They are the words that I shared with my dear wife, Jasna. And I was so blessed. The most beautiful words that she ever spoke to me were those words in response, yes, I do too. I do too. Now, what made that day so special? What made that day so special is that my wife, she freely chose to give her love to me. That's what made that day so special. I have two sisters, two younger sisters. They didn't need to hold a gun to the back of her head and say, you better say I do or else. No, she freely chose to say I do. I will spend the rest of my life with you also. And that is what makes love so special. 
We've discovered that God is a God of love. And the truth, my friend, is for love to be love, it must give you the right to say yes as well as the right to say no. When God created Lucifer, God created him with the ability to love. God created him with the ability to choose to give his love to God or to choose not to give his love to God. That is what makes love so special. You see, I can put a gun to your head and I can ask you to give me your wallet or your purse and you will. I can put a gun to your head and I can ask you to give me the car, your car keys, to give me your car. I can put a gun to your head and I can ask you to do everything and anything and you will do it. But I cannot put a gun to your head and ask you to love me and you to love me. For love to be love, it must give you the right to say yes as well as the right to say no. Imagine with me for just one moment. If at the birth of your of your beautiful baby boy or baby girl, your first beautiful gift that God has given to you, the doctors come to you and they say, we have the perfect solution for you. We are now able to provide for you, to give you the opportunity to have a perfectly obedient child, a genetically modified child perfectly obedient child. How would you like to have a perfectly obedient child? I mean, the chances are your child will bring a lot of heartache and hurt into your life, won't always listen to what you have to say, will possibly bring great heartache. How would you like to have a perfect child that always obeyed you, was just always willing to do just as you said, was just the perfect child? How would you like that? And obviously, what would you say? I'd say, yes, absolutely. But there is just one thing. There is one thing, and that is we need to take out your child's brain, your child's heart, and instead we need to insert a chip, and your child will be programmed to do just as you want it to do. How many of you would want to have a child like that? Not me. I wouldn't want a child like that, even though my child may bring much pain and much suffering and much misery and much sorrow into my life due to the choices they will make. But that's the point. I want them to choose to love me. I don't want my child saying, I love you, I love you, 10 times a day because they have been programmed to say that, to do the dishes, to do whatever, because they have been programmed. What makes a child's love so meaningful, so special, is because that child willingly gives their love to you. And that is what makes love so precious. In fact, Jesus, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, I'm standing at the door of your heart knocking. Jesus, he doesn't force his way in. That door in the book of Revelation has only one knob. And that knob, the only way to open that door is from the inside. God is not in the business of forcing anyone to do anything. God is only seeking love from from willing hearts, from those who choose to serve him. I love what one person wrote. I don't know who the person was, but I scribbled down this statement, this powerful one sentence when I heard it. This is what was this is what was said. God would rather wrestle 
with the stubborn will of man than reign supreme over rocks and trees. Did you get that? I'll repeat that. It's a powerful statement. God would rather wrestle with the stubborn will of man than reign supreme over rocks and trees. That is why there is so much pain and suffering in the world today. God created a perfect being. His name was Lucifer. He was God's light bearer. God created him to love and to give love and to show love. But he created him to choose, to choose whether he would love, whether he would do good or whether he would hate and he would produce evil. And Lucifer sadly made that choice to rebel against God's government of love and to sow those tears, those weeds that we read of in Matthew 13 that we all experience today on a day-by-day basis. So the question is, another all-important question is, where is God when I'm hurting? Where is God where I'm hurting? And my friend, I don't know where you are right now. I don't know what your situation is right now. I don't know the pain and the suffering and the sorrow that you may be experiencing right now. Maybe you have been left by someone who was near and dear to you. You have been discarded like a, like a throwaway can. Maybe you are suffering the loss of someone dear who has passed away due to illness. Maybe you are suffering abuse. Maybe you have lost your job. Maybe you yourself have been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Maybe you have no work. Whatever the case may be, whatever your pain and sorrow may be, your question is, where is God when I'm hurting right now? Notice the beautiful words that we read in Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, we read these words. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Notice God is with us always. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us, no matter what trial, no matter what valley, no matter what storm you go through. Jesus will be with you. You remember the story of Jesus there with his disciples on the lake, Lake of Galilee, and the storm came up, and the disciples thought that they were going to perish. But who was in the boat with them? It was Jesus who was in the boat with them. And he said to them, why were you so afraid? Why were you so afraid? Jesus has promised he will be with you. He will be in your boat. No matter what storm is taking place in your life right now, Jesus is with you. He has promised, I will be with you in your boat and I will never leave you nor forsake you. Notice these final words that Matthew records of Jesus. In Matthew 28 verse 20, Jesus says, I am with you always. How often? Always, when the sun is shining and when the clouds are heavy, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. I love this beautiful scripture, this beautiful promise that we find in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4 and verse 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Notice, we have a high priest. We have Jesus Christ who understands our weaknesses, who understands what it's like to live on this sin-sick planet with all the suffering and sorrow and tragedy that is associated with life on planet Earth. 
He understands. But notice what we continue to read. In verse 16, we read these words. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus invites us to come to him. We can come to him just as we are. And he promises that at his throne of grace, we can indeed obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you have a time of need right now? Does your friend, does your loved one, does your neighbor have a time of need right now? Point them to Jesus. Lift them up before Jesus. Take them to his throne of grace. Come humbly, but yet come boldly to his throne of grace, and you will find help in your time of need. What a beautiful promise. And there are hundreds, hundreds such promises in God's word. In May of 2011, Time magazine ran a front cover with a face that the world now knows full well. Ever since September 2001, this face of Osama bin Laden has become a household name for all the wrong reasons. And it had a red cross on his face, a red cross signifying that his time on planet Earth had come to an end. A couple of days later, whilst I was in the the petrol station, just filling up some fuel, I noticed the newspaper headlines in the Daily Telegraph. And the front page headlines caught my attention. Two words with the face of Osama bin Laden there on the front page. The two words, evil dead. Evil dead. World's most wanted dead. Osama bin Laden, evil dead. As I thought about those words, as much as as the world may think that evil died the day that Osama bin Laden um, allegedly was, was, was killed by the Americans. The truth is that evil has not died. Evil is not dead. But Jesus did say that one day evil would truly be dead. Jesus in Matthew 13 verse 30, back to that parable of the sower, Jesus said, let both grow together until the harvest. The harvest, Jesus said, is the end of the world when the weeds will be placed in the fire and the wheat will be gathered in the barn. The wheat describing the sons of God that will be in his kingdom forevermore. There will be a day when evil will be destroyed forevermore. In fact, the book of Revelation does not end with us here on earth and Jesus in heaven and evil carrying on indefinitely. Notice some of the last words recorded in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 9 we read, Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire. So there we have it. The end of evil, when evil will truly be dead, when the devil and his angels and sadly all those that have believed in his lies when they will be destroyed forevermore. God doesn't want to destroy anyone. God didn't want to destroy Lucifer at the very beginning. I am sure 
that God, being the God of the Bible that he is, the God that I know and understand and love, the God of love, he would have reasoned with Lucifer. He would have tried to persuade him with all of his might and strength for Lucifer to turn away from his evil ways, to turn away from this evil course that he had undertaken, believing that he could run the universe in a better way than God could. But sadly, God could not woo Lucifer's heart. Sadly, God could not turn back a third of the angels that chose to believe his lies. And sadly, in the end, there will be those that will be lost, not because God wants them to be lost. The Bible is clear. God wants all to repent, all to repent, that none may perish, but that all may receive eternal life. But sadly, very sadly, there are those who do not want to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who do do not want to accept the gift of salvation, who do not want to accept Christ as their only life support, and sadly they will be lost. At the end, there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain, for the former things would have passed away. In fact, this is how the book of Revelation ends. Those last two chapters show forth how God restores this world. Notice what we read. In the second last chapter of the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and verse 4, John describes what will take place when evil is destroyed. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Wow, what a beautiful promise. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Let me read it again. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear. All tears will be wiped away. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have all passed away. Wow, what a day. What a day of rejoicing. What a day when there will be no more pain and sorrow, no more death. War and want and worry will be over forever. There will be no more death and disease and destruction and divorce. Sin, suffering and sickness and sorrow will be gone. Pestilence and pollution and poverty over forevermore. No more chaos, confusion and calamity. Oh, never again will anyone be afraid. Never again will a tear of pain and sorrow be shed, for there will be only one pulse that reverberates throughout the entire universe, and that will be the love and the joy and the happiness associated with God. What a day, what a day. I long for that day when all suffering will be over. How about you, my friend? How about you? Notice what we read in the following verse, in verse 5. Notice who is the one who is giving us this beautiful promise. John writes, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Wow. God will make all things new. And we can put our faith and trust in the word of God because his words are true and faithful. My friend, Do you want to join me in preparing for that great and awesome day when Jesus will come and he will put an end to all the sin and the suffering and the sorrow? 
Today is the day to make that decision, to be part of his everlasting kingdom of love, to be part of this world where all things will be made new. If that's your decision, if you want to give your heart to Jesus right now and say, Lord, I want to give you my heart. I want to give you my life. I want to prepare for your everlasting kingdom of love. I want to invite you to pray with me right now. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the promise. The promise that evil will not continue indefinitely, but there is a day coming when evil will be gone forevermore, where there will be no more sin and suffering and sorrow, where all the former things would have passed away. We look forward to and we long for the day when you will create a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. May we be part of your everlasting kingdom of love. Oh, thank you for the promise. Thank you that you love us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 